Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Battleship, the new Peter Berg adaptation of a board game. <laughs> and uh, joining me in Slate Studios is John Swansburg, our culture editor. Hey, John. Hey. Aye, aye. <laughs> Keep the naval puns a-coming. <laughs> um, so we saw Battleship together the other night. Um, we did. And walked out in some state of bafflement. I think you enjoyed it a bit more than I did. I think I did. Um, and I now no longer remember the movie, essentially, which <laughs> speaks to exactly the kind of movie this is, right? It's the Hasbro adaptation that you forget immediately afterward. Right. Um, but it is going to be really, really fun to talk about it with you. So so where should we start? Try to help me get this formless bunch of naval explosions into some sort of order. What What is Battleship about and how does it adapt to the game? Okay, so the, the naval action kicks off with something called the RIMPAC exercises, which I, I googled and does exist. It's a, it's a series of kind of, of biennial naval exercises where the U.S. Navy gets together with other navies, including uh, the Japanese Navy, and they, they sort of do war games, I guess, uh, off the coast of Hawaii. And in this year, uh, during the course of the normal, like, let's pretend there's a war happening, there's an alien invasion. Right. Uh, that's that's sort of the which the, is the not setup unpromising as a setup. It actually no. reminds me of the setup of the Wrath of Khan at the beginning, the Kobayashi Maru test. And right. All that yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Of course. And uh, you know, in a way, I kind of admired that this movie. You know, the the task set before Peter Berg and his collaborators was to adapt a relatively boring, static board game where you're like guessing where someone's ships are on a ten by ten grid. I mean, it's not exactly there's not much story there. So I kind of admire the chutzpah that it took to say like, well, why don't we have this be about an alien attack? You know, it's a it's a movie very much much about uh, you know naval battles but since there aren't great naval battles in the current world uh, and the stakes somehow wouldn't be high enough or would right. be too jingoistic or something yeah so they're like let's just kind of make it a goof in a way and have it be about these these aliens attacking i kind of thought that was a was a clever decision um, so anyway, these you know there are these naval exercises are going on. This uh, I guess like five alien ships uh, appear on NASA's radar. Uh, they kind of crash land on Earth. One of them crash lands in uh, Hong Kong and causes a lot of death and destruction. But the one we care most about happens very as it happens very close to where uh, Taylor Kitsch's uh, ship is is doing these naval operations uh, right near Pearl Harbor. Actually, right which near is Pearl never Harbor. Really remarked upon directly, even though there, as we'll see, there's a lot of uh, there's a a lot of old guy veteran action that happens later in the movie, but the fact that this is basically sort of a weird reenactment of Pearl Har- Harbor with the Japanese cast as aliens is never really made quite plain. Yeah, although the Japanese in this instance are emphatically our allies. allies. Yeah, I mean maybe that's why they maybe that's why they decided. I thought it was kind of a weird decision that there were Japanese ships involved at all. I thought this was just going to be about the U.S. Navy. It struck me as kind of odd that they decided to have a bunch of Japanese naval officers involved as well. And it was sort of our Navy teamed up with the Japanese Navy to fight off these these aliens. I wonder if that decision was made in or you know, I don't know, for because of the Pearl Harbor setting or what. But anyway, these aliens land. We don't really have any sense of kind of what they want um, or who they are. Their ships kind of look like 
I don't know. They reminded me vaguely of kind of the trans the way the Transformers look in the Michael Bay movies. You know, they're they're constantly kind of shifting around. They don't look like the kind robots, of insectoid yeah, metal insectoid ships, right? metal with ships with these kind of strange like Aztec columns coming up out of the ocean. The design is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, basically, actually, for the first twenty minutes or so, although everything was really bad up until then, I was sort of thinking, well, this is going to achieve some kind of moment of of kitsch sensibility where it kind of melds into something fun and watchable. But I found the whole thing pretty dreary and excruciating. See, I was kind of curious throughout. Uh, as to like what the story was going to be, you know, who are these aliens? Why are they here? What, you know, why are they uh, taking these malicious actions? Do they want to colonize the planet? Do they need our resources? But we never find any of that out. We do not ever find any of that out. That is a true and fair criticism of this movie. But at least for the be- like the first third of the movie, I was curious how the movie would answer those questions. It, I feel it, like that's that should so I'll give a good review to your sense of curiosity, but not to the movie. <laughs> well, that's fair. I mean, I'm just I'm just saying that I think the reason that I have positive feelings about this movie uh, is that I was curious for the first third what was going to happen. It turns out that we never learned the answer to that, which I, looking back on the movie, I realize is an objective problem with the movie. But the last third of the movie was so goofy and fun that I'm willing to forgive the movie its inability to kind of come up with any kind of captivating backstory for the attacking aliens. I think that was one of your big problems with the movie, right? We never really get a great sense of who the aliens are or what they are. A great sense? I mean, we barely even get to see them, right? There's, There's one scene where they come across a corpse or what they think is a corpse of one of the aliens that's in this kind of, also, I think kind of Transformers-esque or just standard science fiction. I mean, they're really boring looking, right? Yeah. Kind of metal suit. And I thought there was going to be a cool moment where they tried to get the hood off, you know, to get the armor off and then realized, oh, this is the creature. It's like a robot creature. But that never really happened. And I guess the other thing we know about them is that there are five ships. The one that they lost, they lost one kind of en route, and it was their communication ship. And they're trying to send a signal back to their home planet. And the, the human characters assume that the signal they want to send back is like, hey, we got here. Yes, let's invade and kill everybody. Bring the other ships. And so the, the sort of action of the movie uh, is essentially Taylor Kitsch and his, uh, on the ship, the John Paul Jones that he commands. Um, they're trying to thwart the alien efforts to get a message back home saying send in the cavalry. Right. And then in a second uh, story, a second group of humans that's, that's struggling to uh, – to, to keep the aliens from making that communication is Brooklyn Decker, the Sports Illustrated model, right. uh, who plays the girlfriend of, of Taylor Kitsch. And uh, and her client, I guess, a, a She's guy, a physical therapist? She's or a, a physical therapist in Hawaii. And her client, who is this man who's lost both of his legs or both of his lower legs in the war, who actually is played by a real war vet. I, oh, read I wonder about I that. thought he had just CGI fake legs, but he actually did lose his legs in the war. That doesn't make him a better actor. No, <laughs> no it doesn't. <laughs> so the two of them, the model and the guy, are on the on the sorry, are on a mountain in Hawaii where this kind of SETI-style communication with outer space, um, I don't know what you'd call it, like satellite dish exists, and they're also trying to disable the dish from there. That's a really, really boring side plot. I think you'll agree that when we cut there, the energy just gets even... Oh, yeah, it's terrible. Although I did have a question for you about that. How did you feel about the fact that the movie... One thing we should talk about is this, this movie is, even though we're fighting aliens, it is kind of a jingoistic Navy recruitment video. Extremely, uh, like, yeah. Um, which didn't bother me, I think, quite as much as it maybe bothered you. But I, I wondered what you thought about the use of, uh, of that actor who has lost both you know, two limbs in, in war. Like, did you think that that was a brave thing for a summer tentpole Navy propaganda movie to do? Or was it because he ends up getting a moment where he kicks ass and sort of finds himself as a soldier, even without, you know, uh, how, even though he's lost two of his legs, does that somehow, I don't know, make it seem like just one more piece of propaganda to you? Like, well, how did that play to you? I don't know. I guess it's funny because the, the, the propaganda 
side of the movie did kind of offend me in parts, but not in the use of that guy in particular. No, I mean, I think that would have been fine. If it had been a better movie, I might have thought, what a clever choice to cast that guy and what a yeah. great job he did. And a lot of times, non-professional actors who have had some experience that the character is actually having can be amazing. I mean, in this case, you know, it, was not, it didn't bring out his, his most nuanced performance. No, it, it did not. It's not, it's not a great performance. And it is kind of a strange... It, it does kind of deaden the movie when we switch to the to mainland Oahu or wherever they Not are. Not that things are exactly scintillating aboard the John Paul Jones, but wait, wait, let's get back and go through who are the who are the folks on the John Paul Jones. So Taylor Kitsch plays our hero, yes, our reluctant Hopper. hero. Right. right? We, when we first meet him, he's he's a ne'er-do-well, he's a drunk, he has no direction in his life, and his older brother who's in the Navy convinces him to join the Navy to sort of clean up his act. And we kind of we kind of join the action when he's been in the Navy for long enough that he's high, pretty high up on the food chain on the John Paul Jones. He's so not it's not clear yet. why, because he seems to have this chronic problem with authority that everyone references who meets him, right? right. There's a, has to be a line that each person says to him when they meet him where they say, you just can't take orders and one day it will destroy all those around you. Yeah, exactly. And yet he's somehow third in command. Like two people die and all of a sudden he's captain of this ship, which is like a pretty badass ship. Um, so that's a little bit hard to believe, though I was willing to dispense with my uh, uh, disbelief about about that, and then um, Rihanna plays uh, another crew member of the ship. I, I don't know exactly. She's sort of. I don't know, like a weapons expert or something. Uh, yeah, she's basically the one with her finger on the trigger. They don't really say what her yeah, rank is or what she, she doesn't does. have a huge role, but I thought she was fine. I mean, uh, you know, she's obviously not um, very experienced in, in movie acting, but I thought she held held her own. She wasn't um, objectified in a way that I maybe would have assumed this movie would have. You know, she sort of plays a tomboyish character. She's not a love interest. She just kind of kicks a lot of ass um, and is fun, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Fun she's, yeah, she's, she's fine. Um, John, I'm going to stop you for just a moment for a word from our sponsor. So the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast is delighted to be sponsored by Audible.com, which, as you know, is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. They have more than 100,000 titles, which you can play on nearly any device. And right now, Audible has a special offer for spoiler listeners. You can get a free audiobook and also a 30-day free trial by signing up at this URL, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. So we like to recommend some listening on Audible that's remotely related to the, uh, the topic of discussion of the day. And it is quite remote today, but I think it's worth it because it looks like a good book. It's it's called Father's Day, A Journey into the Mind and Heart of My Extraordinary Son. It's by Buzz Bissinger, who was the author of the book Friday Night Lights, which Peter Berg, director of Battleship, turned into a movie and subsequently a TV show. So again, that's Father's Day by Buzz Bissinger, and you can get a copy of that free audiobook or many others at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Okay, John, back to Battleship. So... After we've got these multiple setups, right, the, uh, the, the nerds who run SETI, right, and, uh, and, and Brooklyn Decker and her, her legless client and the John Paul Jones crew, then we have a very, very long middle segment basically involving battle after battle with the aliens where right. we never learn any more about the aliens. We never really quite see what's inside their ship or see what's at stake for them. But it's just sort of uh, face off after face off here in the water in this, like, I guess, sort of cone of, of, of force field that the aliens create around the ships, so that so that nobody from the outside can get in. Right. The, basically, the the archipelago of Hawaii is surrounded by a force field. So that that means that only the alien ships and the whatever ships were doing the exercises are in there. So that's the, that's the conceit that makes it essentially like five boats versus five boats, as opposed to like the entire U.S. Pacific fleet against the aliens. Right. It does narrow the scope, and so I can see why that choice was made. But then there could have been way cleverer things happening within that force field that were happening. It also sadly rendered Liam Neeson's character, who's I don't know if he's an admiral. I don't know what his rank is. He's a, a, a 
big dude in the Navy, right? right. Very powerful. He's also the father a, of Brooklyn Decker's character. Right. He's commanding an aircraft carrier, the USS Ronald Reagan. and uh, which, is, but which is outside the cone. It's outside the cone. So he is... He's, he's just like, impotently kind of... He can't even radio in. So essentially we see him at the beginning and end of the movie, right? Yeah. Barking and, orders. He's a couple fun lines, but he, you know, it, sound, it looked like two or three days of work for him, tops. He was not a, a major presence, even though he seems to be in the trailer. Um... There was one clever part in, in the middle section that I thought um, – at one point – I can't remember how they contrive this to be the case. But I guess it's dark and the radar isn't working and they've lost track of the alien ship. And they're worried that the alien ship is somehow going to – is making progress towards its goal. And they're like, how can we find the ship in the dark without radar? And at this point, one of the Japanese captains who's been brought aboard, the John Paul Jones, after his own ship was taken out, realizes that if they can call up – all of these um, tsunami warning buoys that are placed all over the Pacific Ocean, they can create a grid. And then when there's fl- wave fluctuation, they can, that will like, tell them where the alien ship is because you know, the, wave, the waves created by the wake of the alien ship will make the buoy go up and down. And that will be an, an indication of where the aliens are. And that will be a matter of sort of lobbing some Tomahawk missiles at the, at the spot on the grid that uh, where they see movement. Right. And so, as soon as he starts talking about this grid, you hear people in the theater start to snicker, knowing that we're, just, <laughs> we're getting to the battleship board, game board moment. Right. So basically like what like Rihanna or, or one of her colleagues calls up onto the screen is the giant grid that looks like the very familiar 1980s, you know, uh, battleship game board. And they start – and the, the Japanese captain is sort of like calling out square numbers and saying like fire one here, fire one there. And it's it's essentially they've they've created a way to – have a moment that feels like the board game within the context of this huge, ridiculous, you know, humans versus aliens movie. I don't know. I thought it was very clever. I did, I did not think they were going to really nod to the board game at all. I thought they were just like, this is a Navy movie ostensibly, you know, inspired by this game, but really it's just a Navy movie. I thought it was kind of funny and clever that they managed to sort of create something that wasn't wildly out of uh, out of keeping with with the, the narrative structure that they had that they had established. But wouldn't you agree? I mean, structurally, that the, the funniness and the wit in this movie, what what there is of it, comes too late. Like by the time that came, I was already mad at the movie. I was mad <laughs> at not knowing about the aliens. I was just kind of mad at the sort of loud, boring Michael Bayness of it all. I, and, and the same thing with the last act that we're about to get to, which I agree had some some really good gags in it. It was sort of like it's too late, too little, too late. You've waited too long. I I. I disagree. I mean, I completely think that that's a uh, a, a totally normal and defensible response. But for me, the last third was so fun that I was willing to forgive the sort of slog of the first two thirds. So let's talk about where it starts to get fun. So what happens? What happens <laughs> post cone? So basically, um, it's not even post cone. Oh I yeah, think. they're still in the they're cone. They're still You're in right. the cone. But, basi- but basically the aliens do succeed in, in um, sinking the John Paul Jones. And so now inside the cone, there are no Navy ships left. They, you know, all the, all the Navy ships are outside the cone. Our heroes are in lifeboats. And someone's like, what can we do now? We don't, we're out of ships. And then I think it's Taylor Kitsch. One of the characters says, we're not out of ships or we have one more ship. And it turns out the one more ship they have – is the USS Missouri. Which we saw very early on in the movie, right? right? As Liam Neeson was christening it as a naval museum. Right, exactly. It's a decommissioned World War II era um, battleship, I guess. or Is it a battleship? Or, yeah, it's a battleship. Um, and 
their they, so the last third of the movie they they t- they take their lifeboats to this uh, decommissioned ship that is supposedly a museum. It already is a museum. There's a there's a gift store, and they get there and they're like, "Well, this is great. This ship is still here and apparently seaworthy, but we don't know how to work the munitions. We don't know how to drive it." And then right, because it's an old steam powered. Yeah, ship, it's an right? old it's an old ship from from another generation. These guys were all trained on these nuclear you know vessels. And then there's this amazing moment, I think my favorite moment in the movie, where all of a sudden, for no reason, there's no reason offered it at all, all of these veterans, uh, seemingly of Korea, maybe even as far back as World War II, emerge like on the on, on like the on like top of the ship, on top of the uh, the uh, I forget the word, uh, on top of the ship, and uh, out some of them nowhere. clad in like jaunty vintage <laughs> naval wear, right? Exactly. Yeah, they're all. I think they're all clad in jaunty vintage <laughs> naval wear, and they're just like appear on the ship, and they're like, "I'll show you how to load a torpedo, Sunny." You know, like I'll show you how to fire the steam engine. <laughs> what I really actually like about that sequence too is that there's no actual rational meeting moment. Like, "Hi, we're these guys. We were just fighting the aliens. Our, our ship sunk. We're needing some help." Right? The guys just know. The, the old guys just know. They come striding out they the just old salts, know. and they're it's just amazing. Fully aware. They're just exactly where they need to be at exactly the right moment. They ask no questions. They are just totally game. They somehow manage to produce ordnance that will fit in these ancient guns <laughs> they like fire this thing up oh, and there's kind of a fixer upper montage right yeah. where they're like there's <laughs> yeah. some hard rock I don't know what it is there's some sort of like long hair like hair rock it's kind Fortune of. Sun by Creedence Clearwater now Fortune Sun is under the final credits isn't it something else no, it's I thought some it was more... during that moment I'm pretty sure really I don't know we'll have to yeah well, anyway, I don't yeah. think it's Credence because I remember thinking I have to look up what this is and I would have recognized – I did recognize Fortunate Son under the credits. I, I felt like it was something a little bit more like for those about to rock, we salute you type music. <laughs> it could be. Anyway, but there is a great montage and my favorite scene in that montage is that one of the characters goes into the, the gift store and just like throws down like a, a display case full, <laughs> full of stuffed animals and like, you know, like souvenirs. blow up Navy, <laughs> Navy souvenirs. Um, so anyway, they like pull this mothballed destroyer uh, – out into the sea and then contrive to uh, take out the last alien ship using, you know, very antiquated technology. And that, I don't know, at that point I was just like, this is a step into goofiness that I that I just can't help but applaud. It's just so, it, the movie kind of becomes as ridiculous as I kind of hoped the whole thing would be. And for me at least, that, that last third of, of silliness was so silly and so enjoyable that it made me kind of forget the first first two thirds. Yeah, I agree when the wit kicked in in the third act. It was it was somewhat of a saving grace, but I don't think I can really forgive the movie for having to kowtow to that inevitable scene in every one of these kinds of movies. It happened over and over and over again, too. It was like the first two thirds of the movie. That's all it was, was like the slack-jawed, odd stare at some sort of science fiction thing rising up out of the water, you know, with, right. the, with the odd, oh my God. Like all the somberness of that was so wasted. It was not what people came there for, and it was not what we want to take away. I agree. I mean, for, I don't, it's a weird thing to say, but in a way, the, the silliness of the last third was that much more enjoyable because it was so unexpected at that point for me. Like, I sort of thought I understood the terms that this movie was operating on. I thought that they were the terms you just were describing of like slack jawed, you know, oh my God, look at that alien ship, uh, like go Navy, you know, but all, even though the premise was goofy and just the taking, movie was the scrappy, taking the scrappy David and Goliath thing so far that it just doesn't make sense and it's not even compelling or fun to watch because there's no real strategy at work. Right. You just know they're going to win because they're David and, and not Goliath. Right. But then when they when they pulled the the Missouri out at the end, I you was forgave so, all. I, I forgave all because I was like so surprised. I was like, oh, this movie's taking this turn. I never saw that coming. If they'd started with it, it would have been something else um, entirely. But I don't know. I thought it was really uh, really fun. All right. So with what caveats would you recommend this? If you would recommend it at all? I, I don't know if I can actually recommend it. It's long. It's it's pretty silly. Um, 
But, you know, if you're the kind of person who sat through the Transformers, uh, the Michael Bay Transformers movies and, and enjoyed them mildly, I think this is a, a better and funnier and um, slightly more – slightly easier to follow uh, film than, than that. So I don't know. That's a, that's a tepid endorsement. But as tentpole movies go, I, I don't know. I walked out smiling and laughing uh, some, somewhat at the movie's expense, but I was not angry uh, at the movie the way I, I, I don't know. I don't know that I completely disagree with Anthony Lane, who I haven't read his review yet, but I saw this great pull quote from it where he says that this movie makes Michael Bay look like Ken Loach in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> and it's clearly trying to do Michael Bay in many ways. Like Brooklyn Decker is styled and shot exactly like Megan Fox in the Transformers movies with the constant wafting breeze in her hair and all that. And, uh, and the, the, the ships are clearly modeled after Transformers type ships. And even right. the sense that Taylor Kitsch is this sort of not very with it schmo who manages to get into this leadership position is a little bit like the Shia LaBeouf character in the Transformers. Oh, but Taylor Kitsch is so much more likable than Shia LaBeouf. Like Sam Wickwicky ruins the Transformer movies for him. I want him to lose. He makes me root <laughs> for the Decepticons. Whereas Taylor Kitsch, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a Friday Night Lights fan. I mean, maybe that's another thing to mention. Like if you like Friday Night Lights and you're... You well, know, it's you're, Peter you're, Berg and Taylor Peter Kitsch Berg. together again. But yeah. I, I kind of feel like it's a really it's a really sad fallen relationship for the two of them. And that if I did <laughs> already love Taylor Kitsch, except for the fact that he looks great. I don't know that I would get anything out of this movie. Yeah. I mean, Kitsch-wise. <laughs> I, can't, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> but I, they, they have some, uh, they've earned a lot of capital with me, and, and uh, they spent almost all of it in this movie, but, you know, I still enjoyed seeing Taylor Kitsch's face up there. As long as there's not a battleship, too, please. <laughs> I think there could Turn be. to some other game. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, John, when when they go down to the next level of scraping the bottom of the barrel for material and make like Starburst wrapper the motion picture, <laughs> will you come in and spoil it with me, please? As long as it's pink, yellow, or red. Yes. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.